everybody. Welcome back to the Deep Astronomy Show. I'm Tony Darnell from deepastronomy.space, and today we're going to be listening to a hangout that we had done last week on the topic of nuclear thermal propulsion. And this is a topic I think you'll find fascinating, because while the idea of NTP is not new, it's been around since the 60s, we haven't really done much developing of the technology. And as anybody who's followed space travel for any length of time knows, that Rockets haven't really changed all that much since the 1960s. We are basically still using the same rocket technology that we've always used. Well, nuclear thermal propulsion promises to change all of that by giving us a more efficient mechanism for getting thrust and propulsion to our vehicles in an efficient way that will allow us to explore the deep solar system, including things like getting us to Mars in like half the time. So as you may have noticed, these, these hangouts are sponsored by the American Astronautical Society, and the approach that we're trying to take with these hangouts is we're trying to split it up with three guests, one representing government, another representing private industry, and a third representing academia. So our guests today are Dr. So I will be introducing them in the hangout. There will be some visuals that we talked about uh, that, are, that you're going to listen to in the hangout. If you'd like to see those, they just go to my Deep Astronomy YouTube channel and check and click on the Hangout VOD and you'll see all of the links in the description box below. I can't really do it. I can't really do it in a podcast format because it's just not the way we consume this content. So anyway, sit back, relax, and enjoy learning about nuclear thermal propulsion and let's dream of getting to the stars quicker. Hey everybody, welcome back to Future in Space. My name is Tony Darnell from deepastronomy.space, right there in the little lower third there. Welcome back to another, I'm, I'm glad we're doing these again. I'm so happy we're back uh, doing these hangouts. Today we're going to be talking about something that I know I'm, I'm really curious about, and I know you guys are too, about nuclear thermal propulsion. Now, this, some, this is one of these topics that seems to me like we should have solved this by now, right? I mean, we should have this already. <laughs> and so, um, but, and, and this, this technology that we're going to be discussing today is based on um, something that people have been thinking about since the Von Braun era. They've been thinking about this since the 60s, and uh, it is a more efficient way of getting us into uh, space via uh, uh, rockets that are not chemically powered. Now, um, one of my guests, Mike Houts from uh, Marshall Space Flight Center, sent me a NASA video uh, that explains this quite nicely. It's only three minutes long, and it kind of helps sets the stage for what we're going to be talking about. I want to remind everybody, and I see you guys already uh, on YouTube, so you guys are, are are awesome. I see John and Andy and Superluminal and Peter, all you guys, so thank you for joining us. I'm streaming on YouTube, of course, and you guys know this, Twitch as well as uh, Facebook and Twitter. And so all of those things can be coagulated into my coagulator, and I can read the comments and uh, uh, questions that you might have for our guests uh, if you comment and leave them in the respective platforms. If you use the large question mark on, uh, on YouTube, I can see those easier. It helps me to see the questions. And it's really good to be back again so let me show let me cue up this video it's only three minutes long actually it's two minutes 49 seconds and it explains a lot about what we're going to be discussing so it's sort of a sort of a uh primer if you will if you would so hold on and here it goes First-generation nuclear thermal propulsion, or NTP, could enable both faster transit between the Earth and Mars and a series of advanced space missions. Nuclear thermal propulsion is powered by nuclear fission, which has been used on Earth for more than 70 years. How it works is conceptually simple. Energy from fission is used to heat hydrogen to about 4,400 degrees Fahrenheit. This hydrogen is then accelerated through a nozzle, resulting in a propellant efficiency roughly twice that of the best chemical rocket engines. Nuclear thermal propulsion was considered for use in the Apollo program, and significant development and ground testing was accomplished. 
advances in technology since the 1960s may improve its affordability, viability, and acceptability. For example, it may be possible to fuel modern NTP systems with low enriched uranium instead of highly enriched uranium. In addition, it may now be possible to ground test NTP systems at established, safe, self-contained rocket engine test facilities. For human Mars missions, the physical size of an NTP engine is largely determined by the rate at which fission energy can be transferred to the hydrogen propellant. However, the equivalent volume of the uranium that would be split is actually quite small, roughly that of a toy marble. That energy is used to get astronauts to Mars faster. NTP can take months off the trip compared to using traditional chemical systems. Reducing risks associated with exposure to galactic cosmic radiation, microgravity, and other hazards of deep space travel. The maturation of nuclear thermal propulsion will also facilitate the development of fission surface power systems, enabling a power-rich environment at any exploration location. Abundant power could also be used for in-situ resource utilization, life support, communication, and other diverse applications. First-generation NTP systems are a first step towards advanced nuclear propulsion systems capable of travel throughout the solar system. Okay, I love, I love that. Uh, I love that it. Uh, it sounded like one of those videos that you see that you that you listen to when you're in high school, and your teacher says, "Okay, we're going to watch a film strip right now," and uh, and and you know he goes on to explain all the stuff in there. But you know, I had I had never heard of uh, gameon.nasa.gov. I think I'm going to have to ask my guests about this. Let me bring up everybody here. So here is my panel uh, today. Uh, joining me, um, let's see, in the upper left, I think is where you guys are looking is uh, Dr. Is, uh, Dr. John Horak. He is the Neil Armstrong Chair in Aerospace at Ohio State University. He's also the Senior Associate Dean of Engineering there. So welcome, John. Thank you. Also Glad joining me is Dr. Michael Houts. He is uh, he is from NASA's Marshall Space Flight Center. And he is a uh, he is in he's the nuclear research manager there. So welcome. Mike, it's good to have you here. And also, Dr. Jonathan Witter, he is the chief NTP engineer for BWX Technologies, which is an amazing company. We're going to learn a little bit more about them here as we go on. So uh, also welcome, Jonathan. It's good to have you here. Thank okay. you. Okay. So we just got a little brief overview of what nuclear thermal propulsion is all about. And I, I loved how the video said it's going to improve acceptability of, uh, of this, um, of this technology. I guess it's a little bit scary, uh, but there was also, uh, parts of it that, you know, were reassuring, like we're really only using the amount of uranium that would be maybe marble size. It would, the volume would take up about the size of a marble. And so let's start with you, uh, Mike, I want to know about NASA's interest in this first, and then I'd like to talk a little bit uh, with Jonathan about what they're doing to help develop some of this technology as well. So tell us what NASA is hoping to get out of this technology. So, so with, with NTP, I mean, there's a lot of benefits when we do ambitious missions. And so one of the more ambitious missions that people talk about a lot are human Mars missions. And so with NTP on a human Mars mission, you can, you know, for example, it opens up the opportunities to do faster round trips, you know, possibly, you know, cutting a, cutting the round trip time to Mars below say 24 months, you know, maybe down 22, 23 months, even for, you know, what we, we consider first generation systems. And so that uh, you're reducing the astronaut exposure, uh, you know, not just to radiation, but just having to be out there in a, uh, you know, a spacecraft that's gonna be really hard to repair, you know, if anything goes wrong, you know, just the, the natural, you know, the zero gravity, but also just the environment. And also just, again, being on a spacecraft that has to be very reliable for the entire time they're gone. So that's a, uh, a big potential benefit, of course, NTP also reduces one-way transit times to Mars. If, say, we wanted to stay away from Earth even longer, spend a lot more time on the surface of Mars, uh, well, again, you can cut the transit times down. The uh, you, know, you can have a better launch cadence, and that would just be how fast we have to launch the heavy lift launch vehicles for supporting that kind of mission. You have a really good abort capabilities with the NTP architecture. You can, you know, for example, if you 
get a few months into the mission, you can still, you know, basically turn around and come back to Earth. You don't have to go all the way to Mars and come back. And so that's, uh, you know, one aspect of NTP. So it really just gives us a lot of flexibility, a lot of improvements over uh, for those types of missions. And in cislunar space, you know, people talk about uh, lunar tugs, people talk about other applications of the cislunar space, and those are there. But really, it's uh, with nuclear, it's the more aggressive, the more ambitious the mission is, the more it's going to pay off. And then really down the road, you have systems where you can, you know, for example, you could use any volatile for propellant. You know, as mentioned in the video, uh, we don't need chemical energy um, to energize the propellant so that it, you know, again, can provide thrust. We're using fission energy. And so uh, there are system designs out there. We'd consider them second generation systems where you get a, a, a even higher specific impulse, but you can also use almost any a propellant that might be available. And then also with the uh, derivatives of NTP, you know, when we got to the point where we need, uh, you know, lots of power in space, say 100 kilowatt electric unit sizes or higher, then uh, the NTP derived systems also look very good. And that's just really a, you know, using the, you know, the, the standard NTP core geometry, uh, very similar fuels, you know, very you know, similar control systems, everything that we develop with NTP, but then uh, hooking a power conversion subsystem onto that so that we could use that to generate electricity. So that's, Again, further down the road until we, yeah, but again, typically that's say 100 kilowatt electric or higher power sizes. I will mention there's uh, other really good options uh, that we look at, say 20 kilowatts electric and less. Okay. So I, I just did what I didn't want to do. I just probably rambled for several minutes. No, no, no. Well. You didn't. No, that's, that's what we wanted. That's what I asked you, and you answered it. Uh, well, you didn't I, ramble. So I mean. <laughs> I want to remind you guys that uh, I, I should have put this in the in the top of the intro. In the description box is a link to that video that I just showed you. Where you can watch it. Don't watch it now because you're watching me. But you know th that's there. And then I also put a link to something that I this leads to my next question about to Mike about with NASA in my comment earlier about how this this is something that I always thought was would be done by now. Uh, this is not a new concept. NASA has been working on this since the '60s. There's a really great video also in the description box. Uh, in YouTube where you can click on that and watch. It's about 23 minutes long and it's, <laughs> I think it was made by Disney. I don't know. I'm not quite sure, but it's cool and you definitely should check it out. I was pretty transfixed by it. So Mike, this isn't new for NASA, is it? This isn't something that, that you guys are just thinking about. You've always been thinking about it, but we've been so focused on chemical rockets up to now, right? Yeah, yeah. There's been, uh, like, like you said, there's a, a tremendous amount of work done really from about 1955 to 1973 by uh, uh, NASA, the uh, Atomic Energy Commission, uh, just you know, a lot of agencies working on it. And uh, yeah, if, if uh, anyone goes out online and you look under Rover Nerva program or Nerva Reactor Testing, there's uh, you know, dozens of really good videos out there. And so, yeah, again, a tremendous amount of work done uh, um, you know, during that time period. And we can use really, there's been a lot of advances in uh, manufacturing, a lot of advances in materials, uh, just overall vehicle design or computational capability. And so if we choose to develop these systems again, you know, you know, you know, initiate, you know, a, um, you know, a robust program, uh, then really we can build on what was done from 55 to 73, but there's also a lot of areas that, that we'll be able to improve on. And I know, uh, you know, uh, uh, Dr. Horak and uh, Dr. Witter have a lot of, a uh, lot of very relevant research, relevant capability for, for moving things forward. And then also, again, uh, just linking it in with the, uh, the whole idea of special I guess you'd call them like special purpose fission systems in general. Uh, there's a lot of talk now about using, uh, say, small reactors to power remote villages. And so you're not, uh, obviously that's a terrestrial application, but remote areas, uh, remote villages using very safe modern reactors. Uh, but it's amazing how much commonality uh, space reactors, reactors that we might consider using in space would have with those types of systems also, because again, you're going to be extremely safe, extremely reliable, extreme, you know, good lifetime, uh, minimal maintenance, uh, a lot of the same uh, types of requirements. Okay. Uh, so it, actually, hold on before I pull that up. So um, I'm sorry here. Hold on. Get my, my things right. So Jonathan, I want to talk to you next because I had not heard of BWX technologies prior to this. And I went to the website and, uh, wow, this was, this was pretty amazing. The stuff that you guys are doing, your company seems to know about nuclear power of all sorts. You're involved in nuclear power submarines. You're involved in, in uh, nuclear fission in all parts. Now, from my naive perspective, Nuclear power is one of those things that seems to have, in my, from my perspective, and I know you'll dispute this, 
kind of got stuck in the 50s we we did we had we built nuclear power plants everybody was excited about them too cheap to meter all of this stuff we kept hearing about how great nuclear power plants were and then they built a few and then i kind of thought the technology stopped there but obviously i'm wrong about that tell us a little bit about what you're doing and what and, and specifically bwx technologies is doing with respect to nuclear thermal propulsion and maybe sure. give us a guide about how wrong i am about advancements in nuclear fission along <laughs> the, the way uh, right well sure yeah bwxt really has been involved with nuclear power since the the beginnings uh, starting off as a boiler steam boiler maker uh, and working on the early Early such in the heyday of nuclear in the 60s, whether it was Atoms for Peace converting uh, the weapons program into commercial or public public use, so whether it was space reactors, a huge effort with NASA and the Department of Energy, which was used to be called the Atomic Energy Agency uh, or Atomic Energy Commission, uh, worked. Uh, for power reactors, and the United States actually flew a snap reactor, uh, one reactor. Uh, in space, a small couple kilowatt uh, power system, and then did a lot of testing, like Mike mentioned, for Nerva Rover, where they tested about 20 reactors in the desert, uh, at developing the fuel, developing the reactor technology and rocket technology at all sorts of different sizes. The BWXT has evolved over the years, working on commercial power plants and then also space reactors uh, over the time. We worked a little bit on the Nerva program, uh, later genres of power systems for, say, SB100 uh, in the late 80s, uh, BWC was involved with that. Uh, and then there was an Air Force project that got converted into a, a commercial project for space nuclear thermal propulsion for a particle bed reactor. BWC was heavily involved with, with that effort. So over the years, as NASA and the government kind of comes and goes with what they want to do with nuclear thermal propulsion, at times, BWXT has been involved as one of the industry partners, along with other uh, university researchers and other industry partners, uh, uh, to, to continue to develop the, the, the aspects. And most recently, we've been involved uh, as part of the Game Changing Dirt uh, Development Office, uh, which is that Game On NASA site, uh, where they have in fact, just this week, they're doing their entire program review where they're kind of like the incubator program for NASA for looking at different technologies. So, Is that what that is? Is that what the Game On thing is? Is an incubator? Pretty much. Okay. I never heard of it. A lot of really cool. If you go to their website and check out the different technologies that they're developing, there's some really cool little things that they're doing, uh, ranging in kind of like the multi-year efforts to multi-million dollar efforts. And NTP is one of the bigger efforts right now, uh, we're coming to the end of a three-year contract with NASA, partnering with them for reactor design development and then fuel element because we're, we're a manufacturing company as well as a design agency. Uh, we we want to be able to build these reactors uh, ultimately. And so that's why NASA partnered with us to, to try to develop the technology, bring it a step further than more kind of like the more recent paper studies of, as Admiral Rickover would say for the Navy, uh, well, you can have a dime a dozen paper reactors, but until you actually have to go off and build one, you find the true challenges of, of uh, building and operating a reactor system, especially for a space system. Yeah. Where, where it's a high power dense system and you've got to make it low mass uh, and provide the heat to heat the propellant. Well, I want to I'm going to go back to some of the details of the design here in just a minute, but I want to get uh, John in on this just for a second, Doctor Horak. What are, uh, are and I'd like for you, hopefully, you can comment on another concern that I have. But I want to talk. I want to find out what you're working on at Ohio State uh, with regard to this technology, and can you comment on some of the the safety issues that are having to be? I mean, there's got to be some safety issues here that we got to worry about with respect to this technology. I was hoping maybe you could comment on that too. So yeah, I can start with that. Um, oh, okay, good. First of all, anytime you fly anything in space, uh, even if it's a jug of water, safety is paramount. Um, you're going to put something on a rocket. A rocket is a huge energy density machine. You're going to let all that energy go at once and accelerate that object just to get to low Earth orbit faster than the muzzle velocity of a gun. Uh, space station is moving at almost five miles a second. So safety is already built into everything that we do in spaceflight. 
So that's the first thing. The second thing is that of all the nuclear systems you might want to fly on a spacecraft, this is the one that you want to fly because it has the potential to be the very safest. We have flown more um, challenging nuclear payloads into space. So, for example, when we send spacecraft to Mars, the Mars rover, that uses plutonium. Uh, plutonium is extremely toxic. It has very significant. Uh, those are, are those the RTGs, by the way. Those are the RTGs. Okay, radiothermal generators. Yeah, of, yeah, plutonium decay to make heat, and that thermal energy is converted into electricity. Plutonium's nasty stuff. <laughs> yeah. you, don't, you don't want it anywhere near your body, and you don't want it anywhere near anyone who might be an adversary. That's right. Cassini, the deep space probes tend Cassini, to have these on them. Voyager, Voyager had one. All of them. That's right. right. So right. this is not something that we haven't done or don't know how to do. And in fact, the launch of a low enriched uranium nuclear thermal propulsion system, it's actually launched, switched off, which is not the case with the plutonium reactors. When you launch a plutonium reactor into space, it's on and it's hot. So first of all, I, I think it's important to say we're very safe. We aim to be very safe anytime we fly something in space. And a low enriched uranium nuclear thermal propulsion system is among the safest nuclear things you could decide you want to put on a rocket. Now, that's that's the safety issue. Um, what well, we I'm going to I'm going to drill down on this in a minute about why is this this why you say because you're not qualifying it, but you're just saying it. So, I don't, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that, you know, things like radiation, the amount of radiation is not as much the I mean, like you mentioned, plutonium is nasty stuff here. We're just talking about enriched uranium. Uh, those are. One that's one reason why it's a little bit safer, but is it also because it's just not generating as much radiation directed at us? Is that not? It's not generating as much radiation. It's actually not hot when you launch it. It's in a very quiescent. It's off. It's an on an off state. The reactor's off. You don't turn it on until you get into space. So, so launch a, a, an explosion during launch or something like that isn't so scary well, uh, i mean it's never a good it's thing a but when, you, when your rocket explodes it's a bad day I, I, i'm not trying to say it isn't it's just right. but but it would be at a super bad day if it had plutonium on board right well, so actually we can go into that as well there have been some some uh, launch accidents that involved uh, radioisotope thermoelectric generators we fish them out of the water we put them back on a rocket and go oh um, but this would not okay. be uh this would not be a catastrophe this would not be okay. a calamity it would not be you know and if, thank thank goodness so hopefully no humans on board no one would lose it there would be no loss of life uh you'd have to go get your stuff out of the ocean put it back together and try again okay all right, right. yeah wait, and i guess to one one clarification is is a lot of times in the press they always call the rtgs uh, nuclear power or reactors and and they're, they're really just a heat source by yep. radioactive decay uh, of the uh, of the plutonium element. Now, one reason why they like to use it, they look hard, high and low to find a different radioisotope to use. But the plutonium-238 has got such a long half-life that they can go on these long-duration missions. So for 20 years or more, they can have a power supply that, that works pretty well. The, the cost of that is that it's highly radioactive when you're launching it, and it's hot. Uh, yep. with, with the loads needed to, to create the amount of electricity that they want for the payload. Yep. Like uh, Dr. Horak was saying, that for a nuclear reactor, you don't turn it on until it's up in space and the vehicle's uh, already assembled. So it's not like we're launching these rockets off of the Earth, uh, like you see SpaceX and ULA and NASA launching things. The, the rocket engine doesn't get turned on uh, until it's in space ready for the mission to, mission to start. Yep. And, and just to elaborate on that, with the... Uh, uh, plutonium heat sources, of course, the uh, uh, plutonium dioxide itself is a very good uh, compound you know, from a safety standpoint, you know, as far as, uh, you know, if you did get in an extremely severe accident scenario, and then you have iridium clads and graphite aeroshells. So those have been uh, designed, you know, highly designed to be uh, to be very safe to launch. But again, as uh, uh, Jonathan and John also mentioned, though, with fission, uh, you know, you're, you're essentially non-radioactive at launch. I mean, I think, I don't know if you sent one of those pictures in, Jonathan, but, you know, you had... Uh, you, you know, the old rover nerve test, I mean, you see people sitting right next to the, the highest power reactors ever built. Uh, and before they've been operated, again, I guess you'd say they're uh, uh, essentially non-radioactive. And then what's nice, too, is with the nuclear launch approval policy uh, with the low enriched uranium systems, it's a uh, it's really a, um, you know, risk uh, consequence basis. And that just came out a couple of weeks ago. That's available online if anybody's interested. But it's something uh, we now have a very you know, quantitative 
a set of criteria that, that make a lot of sense. They're based on uh, EPA, um, you know, what the EPA does, what the NRC has done in the past. And so it's, uh, so that's, that's uh, helping move things uh, forward also. But, uh, uh, but again, a lot of, uh, there are a lot of advantages with uh, the low enriched uranium system. Okay. Uh, so um, I do have uh, some of these images, uh, but, but, but let me, let me, uh, so I'm, Unfortunately, I don't have time to queue it up properly, folks. But I'm going to show this one um, this one slide that was uh, brought over. Uh, I think who brought this over was it you, John? Uh, uh, yes, or, it's, oh. I think it's some some slides that Mike and I have used in other uh, other presentations. Okay, so I'm showing the one that says fundamental performance of nuclear thermal propulsion. Um, if okay. you guys want to have that up locally, uh, go right ahead. But that's the one I'm currently showing, and it's showing the steps by which this thing is uh, going. And so I want to talk about this in comparison with chemical rockets. Now, in a chemical rocket, we are most of us familiar with how that works. We've got solid rocket boosters that 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 fire uh, and 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 provide thrust. We've got these uh, liquid, uh, uh, I think it's liquid hydrogen and helium and oxygen, correct? Or is it something else now that uh, that propels things chemically? The rockets chemically. We also have hydrazine for jets and things like that. But here we're talking about something that's. What did it? What did it say? Twice as efficient? Is that right? As a chemical rocket? Right. So, exactly. So, so if you, if you if you think about it, all, all the 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 benefits of using nuclear fission heat is that you just use the the reactor as a heat exchanger essentially. Uh, the the uranium fissions creates heat from the from uh, the fission products traveling really fast, and the energy given off from Einstein's e equals mc squared says, okay, I can have a lot of power and heat generated in a small area. The trick is to make sure the fuel doesn't melt, so you run the propellant hydrogen through it. Uh, we could run different different gases through it, but the one that makes most sense is we can have a monopropellant tank and just use liquid hydrogen and convert that into uh, supercritical high temperature uh, hydrogen. And so the I classic ISP or specific impulse or the efficiency of the thrust uh, we can achieve high high ISP or like 900 seconds in the, in the rocket for a lance uh, because we we can get to high temperatures in the gas, uh, but then using hydrogen, the low molecular weight, so the temperature divided by the molecular weight gives you a sense of what the ISP or the efficiency of thrust is. For a chemical rocket, the, the best one you can use is, is essentially burning hydrogen by oxidizing it with liquid oxygen. And you come out with essentially kind of a, a high hydrogen content steam out the back end. But the molecular weight of that gas is something like 11 to 18, much, much heavier than hydrogen. And because that mass number is in the denominator, that's a big impact on how high of an impulse you can get with a chemical rocket. So the highest you can really do with a, with a hydrogen oxygen system is maybe about 450 seconds, meaning you have to have twice as much propellant um, in your tanks uh, to be able to go the same distance. And so we can use one, one, one propellant tank, hydrogen, and we need less of it uh, for, for the mission. Okay, sometimes I like to put things in my words just to make sure I understand them and make sure I'm, I'm getting the thing right. I don't mean to, if I'm repeating you, it's not what I'm doing. I'm just trying to make sure I understand. So by sure. taking this marble-sized or sugar cube-sized amount of fuel, uranium enriched uranium in this case, you're, you're fusing that to create heat, which then goes into a chamber full of the fuel, which is in this case hydrogen, and the hydrogen is what's providing the thrust, the impulse, uh, and the trick here, and the reason this is more efficient, is that it's not burning with oxygen, this is being heated by nuclear power, which is a much higher energy source, much more uh, uh, much much higher temperature, and it's doing it more efficiently, and you're getting a higher impulse out the rocket nozzle. Did I did I say that halfway Pretty much, correct? Except for that, the 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 liquid rocket engines will actually have a higher exhaust chamber temperature because they're combusting combusting. So we can't get that hot and gas temperature, but the benefit of having molecular weight of two versus say eighteen, we we don't have to get as hot as a chemical rocket does. Okay. So the key. The, the key is how fast can you make the exhaust come out the back of the rocket? 
And there's two pieces of that. One is how hot can you make it? And two, how light is it? Because if it's heavier, it, it doesn't want to move as fast. And so the specific impulse that, that Dr. Witter had talked about is a measure directly of how fast the gas is coming out of the nozzle. Okay. So you can almost multiply by 10-ish. When you see 450 seconds, that's 4.5 kilometers a second-ish. When you see 800 seconds, that means the gas is coming out at about 8 kilometers a second. And the faster the gas can come out of the nozzle, the more efficient the rocket engine is. Okay. And we're talking, and as you already mentioned earlier in the, in the Hangout, this doesn't get turned on until after we launch. So we're still talking about launching into space the normal way, right? Yeah. You put okay. it on an Atlas V or you put it on a Falcon 9 or you put it on an SLS or something, get it into space, and then you use that engine, the NTP engine, to accelerate your payload away from Earth towards Mars or Jupiter or deep space. Okay. But this is what we call an in-space propulsion system, not a launch vehicle propulsion system. Okay. All right. So I'm going to show now this next slide uh, is pretty, is pretty cool. Uh, this is what we get out of using NTP. So um, I'm, I'm, I don't, I know you guys don't probably have this up locally, but to me, the things that jump out is that we're looking at 160 day transit time to Mars. How much faster is that than what we would do with chemical rockets? Factor three ish. So three times faster we can get yeah, there. It's gonna, we go to Mars on, there's a couple pieces to this because we go mm -hmm. to Mars on 22-ish month intervals because with the systems we have, we have to wait until the planets just line up right and then we can launch. And so you're going to see here in the next couple months, a bunch, a bunch of missions to Mars because we're getting into the right alignment. Now, there are sometimes we can't go because we don't have big enough rockets to do that. So the time factor depends a little bit on when you go, but to, to Dr. House's point, with NTP, you can open up the window. You can go a lot, of, a lot more frequently and at many different times, and you don't have to wait as long, let's say, for the planets to come into alignment. And even more importantly, once you would send, let's say, humans to Mars under a chemical rocket, you have to wait. And you have to wait until Mars and the Earth are back again in the same spot. So as Tom Petty said, the waiting is the hardest part. <laughs> you know, this, this gets, I hate to say it gets rid of Tom Petty because we don't want to do that. No, no, but no. This will allow you to more, more, more come and go as you please, so to speak, as opposed to having to wait for the celestial mechanics to line up which then causes you to have to spend 850 some odd days, 900 days in space because you've got to wait to go and then you've got to wait to come back. Okay, so yeah, going through the bullet points here, all of this is great. It looks awesome. Mars missions are faster. The engines are lighter. We can carry heavier stuff. Uh, the, the mission turnaround time is, is faster. But I'm going down here to this last bullet point. And I'm seeing something called the Apophis Asteroid Mission. <laughs> First of all, I need to know what LEU is. I don't know what an LEU is. Uh, oh. Okay. Yeah. What's an LEU? Uh, that's that's sure. That's that's low enriched uranium. So oh. one of the challenges that G, uh, game changing development uh, put upon put upon us was to to use a low enriched or uh, proliferation resistant fuel. So one of the uh, so that's a challenge because all the Nerva rocket engines were tested with high enriched kind of weapons grade uh, enrichment levels. So one of the safety factors is to use a uh, low enriched or up to 20% enriched. So that's what LEU just stands for low enriched uranium. Okay. Uh, the, the Apophis uh, asteroid <laughs> mission, that, that's left over from Jonathan Certain, who I'm standing in for today. So okay. Dr. Horak may be a better person on, on what that mission might be. Well, let me <laughs> so, just set the stage real quick and say that Apophis is an asteroid that's due in its first flyby in about, is it is it 10 years now, 2029, right? Close flyby. Yeah, yeah the, it's first close flyby. It's going to do it twice. Mm -hmm. And it's going to get so close to the Earth, folks, that it's actually going to go underneath the satellite trail, the satellite envelope of, of geosynchronous satellites. It's going to get close. And so, Mike, is NASA going to use this stuff to maybe do some experiments with Apophis? Or it won't hit, by the way. Apophis won't hit us, <laughs> no. at least not the first time. 2036, who knows? We'll see.
you have any comments on what NASA has planned for? Yeah, you know, NASA is obviously very interested in the, you know, um, you know, it was really just all the asteroids, all the near Earth objects, uh, everything. And then there's a, you know, a lot of different, uh, you know, activities, especially as far as trying to identify them and, and uh, you know, kind of track them, you know, you know verify what their orbits are. Uh, as far as any really specific uh, technologies uh, beyond that, that's that's still uh, you know, a lot of discussion, a lot of, uh, you know, a lot, a lot of interest, obviously, but nothing, uh, uh, but, you uh, you know, beyond the observing and the tracking and, you know, really starting to catalog all these objects, uh, you know, not, not too much definite yet. Okay. Asteroids can be hard to get to because most of the objects in the solar system, let's say all the planets, the moon, the sun, the earth, tend to, within a few degrees, lie in the same plane. We call that the ecliptic. But many asteroids have very highly inclined orbits around the sun, which are energetically very difficult for us to reach. And so with the advent of NTP, we not only can get to places that we can already get to faster, it gives us the energetics to get to interesting scientific destinations that we have a hard time reaching right now just because our rockets are not powerful enough. Apophis is one example of an asteroid. It will come very close to the Earth. But there are many, many, you know, comets and other other solar system bodies that we would like to explore, but are hard to go to, or we just get there because when we have to send tiny spacecraft because we don't have very uh, large launch vehicles. Okay, so yeah, I get that. That you're right. It sounds like the real a, a big challenge with NEOs and protecting ourselves from these if they were to be on a a, a, a collision course with us would is is uh, getting to them is one of the biggest challenges. But with respect to NTP. Is that a viable, te- let's say we get there, is that a viable technology that's powerful enough that could maybe alter the trajectory of a, an apophis-sized asteroid or something similar? Is that a real thing that could happen with NTP? Well, one, one point also is uh, you know, with a high-performance propulsion like NTP, uh, you'd be able to get to an object uh, sooner, you know, faster. Sure. It would be, it'd be uh, further away from Earth. And at that point, altering the trajectory, the, the amount the trajectory would need to be altered wouldn't be as much. Uh, basically, the further away from Earth that trajectory could be altered, the, the less it needs to be altered. And from that standpoint, you'd, you'd have some uh, you know, significant advantages from NTP as far as just as, uh, as uh, Dr. Horak mentioned, just the, the speed that we could get to objects as well. And when you get there, you will also have the opportunity to use the power source of the NTP, perhaps to generate some of the other power that you might need to move uh, to move the asteroid around. So NTP can allow you also to arrive on station with a significant amount of power at your disposal. That's actually Not, quite a, a yeah. huge uh, capability yep. of this, isn't it? I mean, you mentioned it in the Mars video as well, where you know these surface reactors. I mean, we could have a power just might not be an issue <laughs> if we do this right. Is that right? I mean, we've heard this about nuclear power before. I've, I know, power I know. Is always an issue. Always <laughs> okay, well, lack of running out of it. Uh, how, can, how should I put Well, you know what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to, trying to be rosy about this sure. and say no, we're but, not going to, we, we have a lot of other worries, but power won't be one of them. Yeah, I mean, we get we go to the outer solar system with, uh, you know, with nuclear power, because first of all, the sun, it dims as, as yeah. you go R away, <laughs> it gets one over R squared, uh, less bright. So right. you want to go to Neptune? Well, you're not going to use solar panels, you're going to have to have some other way. And you need power to get there. You need power to stop when you get there. And then you'd like to have power when you're there. And NTP is a pathway that would allow you to have all three uh-huh. uh, because there's just no substitute for power when it comes to, to, to doing science or exploration or keeping people alive. You've got to have power. Okay. Well, Gregorius has a really good question for you guys, so I'll ask it and then you guys can decide who answers. He wants to know, how do you transfer the heat between the nuclear material and the hydrogen gas? Do you pass the hydrogen directly through the reactor or do you use an isolated heat exchanger? Jonathan. I'll, I'll take that one because uh, okay. that's exactly what we're up to is uh, looking at the concepts. Essentially, right now, it, you pass the the rocket people call it the propellant, uh, the nuclear engineers call it the coolant. Uh, so we pass <laughs> that hydrogen past the fuel elements. And in this case, the fuel elements are, are looking like uh, 
or a derivative of the Nerva engine where it's, it's just a solid block of metal uh, or ceramic for the, for the fuel uh, that, that embeds the uranium inside this, this fuel body. And then there are coolant holes, much like just a simple heat exchanger, uh, where you pass the hydrogen through the, through the hole. So turbo pumps pump, pump, the, pump the hydrogen through the system. It gets pre-warmed a little bit in other parts of the reactor system to provide the driving force for the turbo machinery. And then it pushes that hydrogen through uh, the fuel elements, which are just essentially a big heat exchanger block. Uh, and the propellant cools the fuel to keep it less than the melting point. Awesome. Good question, Gregorius. Okay. Hans Milling wants to know, the hydrogen tank is a powerful is a powerful bomb if it goes off. How much worse is, for example, helium than using hydrogen? The Hindenburg disaster with a Zeppeliner airship show how flammable hydrogen is. So can you use something, how much worse is... Well, how, how big of a danger is this bomb? It's just Hydrogen is flammable in the presence of oxygen, um, but in space, we don't have oxygen. And the challenge with the hydrogen that we're going to have is how to keep it cold and how to keep it very cold for a very long period of time. So we're not talking about a Hindenburg situation in space. We're talking about a cryogenic fluid uh, at extremely low temperature uh, and that's our engineering challenge, how to keep all that hydrogen very, very, very cold for a very, very long period of time. Sounds like a similar problem that James Webb Space Telescope has. They have to keep things yeah, yeah. super cold right. down there. And, and in fact, that's where the liquid rocket engines, if you've got an oxygen tank and a hydrogen tank, there you've got the potential for those two fluids mixing and burning and exploding. So There's you your Zeppelin disaster. NTP. <laughs> right, yeah. So NTP doesn't have it, the chemical rockets would. Okay. Well, let me just get to Larry Keese's real quick, and then I'll move on to a couple of that I have. Uh, Larry Keese wants to know, uh, does less heat mean that the materials aren't as difficult to manufacture. You said earlier that the chemical rocket, nozzle rocket temperatures were higher. Uh, does this mean that the materials involved in an NTP are easier to manufacture? Uh, well, I would say because we're reaching the near the threshold of the uh, melting points of, of the materials, whether or vaporization points of ceramic. So we're pushing the materials to the highest end. So we need to use very special high temperature materials in order to drive the temperatures up as high. It helps the nozzle by operating at lower temperatures, but you still have to have a region, regeneratively cooled nozzle section. Yeah. But it's really, we're, we're really pushing the fuel elements to, to, the, to the edge of their temperature capability. Darn you space, when are you gonna get easier? These engines Whereas the space shuttle main engine, for example, operated for about eight and a half minutes, these engines may operate three times as long. And so you may be able to withstand uh -huh. uh, eight minutes of operation, but not 20. And so there's, uh, there's a little bit of apples and chickens here in terms of how, how we do the materials. Okay. I'm going to read Joe uh, Schultes' comment. Uh, radioisotope power systems require, this is back when we were talking about the RTGs, radioisotope power systems require robust containment of the plutonium-238 oxide fuel from releasing to the biosphere in an accident. Reactor systems can be designed to prevent criticality for launch accidents. And I think one of you guys alluded to that earlier by saying that you just pick them up and out of the ocean and use them again. So... Um, and Aloha Milton, I admit I, I use these uh, launching from uh, Kerbal without hesitation, even on highly experimental SSTO, somewhat of a hypocrite. <laughs> yeah, so Kerbal. Do you use at NASA? Do you use Kerbal Space Program there at NASA? Oh, uh, uh, I don't personally, but I'm going to be my, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a lot of fun. Not. It's, yeah, it's okay. a lot of fun. Okay, so Jonathan, where are you guys on giving us an engine that we can use? What's the status at BWX Technologies uh, with regard to one of these NT, NT uh, P rockets? Sure. Uh, well, right now we're we're in the we're in the kind of like the end of the game changing development phase of, of parts of it, and as part of that process, we were looking at concepts for looking at the feasibility of the concepts to use low enriched uh, uranium. Uh, and the higher higher temperature capable materials. So we were focusing on refractory metal based core systems um, and the challenges of using that 
are that you need to uh, make you need to slow the neutrons down that come out of fission to make them nice nice neutrons to, to have a small reactor system. It kind nice of gets neutrons. Into, it gets into the com complications <laughs> of, of the reactor physics, but the easiest way to explain it is we need, we need neutrons that are slow enough to get captured in the fuel uh, and not in other materials such that we can create a small enough system. So that's been the challenge of, of focusing on the low enriched systems with refractory metals because uh, the refractory metals tend to be somewhat poisonous. They, all, they also like the neutrons, so they compete with the uranium for the neutrons. So from we've come through the feasibility assessment uh, right now and getting ready to report out to NASA GCD and Mike Counts as the principal investigator uh, on the feasibility of, of assembling this and, and really integrating it with the rest of the engine system. So this effort also included a lot of integration with the engine uh, engine folks at Marshall and at Aerojet Rocketdyne to, to integrate the package instead of just focusing on the reactor itself. We wanted to, to really look at the integrated system and the and the nuances that the engine people need to be aware of that the reactor needs, but also we needed to be, understand what the engine folks would need or could supply to us. Uh, so we're coming through that now. It, it's still... GCD is really meant to kind of raise the, the technology readiness level uh, up to a certain level. Uh, and we're kind of like at the early stages of that coming out of the, yeah, they did it back in the 60s with NERVA, developing it up to a certain point. Uh, and over time, they've had different looks at it. But this was another hardware exercise and a little bit deeper dive into the design. But it's still at the early stages because they said use low enriched uranium use refractory metals uh, in a in a moderated thermal system instead of a fast reactor uh, and so those were the challenges that were all brand new that we were charged to look at okay mike you have a comment on that i mean that's they they sounds like they've got the proof of concept stage ready to go uh yep. what is nasa ready to take this are we are we going to be doing doing a test firing soon or what's next yeah so they've been uh uh, having tremendous progress made on <clears throat> systems. The, uh, <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, you, let's talk for Mike. Okay. But anyway, uh, Jonathan has been making tremendous progress. That's not what made me choke up. Um, and so, the, yeah, yeah, actually, but the, um, uh, yeah, so we've got um, a lot of good fuel options for the system, a lot of really good system designs. We have, uh, Looking at systems now where you can get not just the 900 second specific impulse for your main thruster, but you can uh, actually have an orbital maneuvering system uh, possibly giving you about 500 seconds of specific impulse. And uh, Aerojet Rocketdyne and others have done a really good job laying out the engine design for that. Um, again, options for uh, uh, you know just really uh, integrating the NTP engine into a stage in a way that you have a lot of other stage benefits in addition to uh, yeah, rather than, rather than looking at them separately, uh, if you look at them in the stage, uh, you yeah, get a lot of potential benefits. So I'll turn it over to John or Jonathan and get another drink, and I'll be right back. Okay. <laughs> Sorry we caught you on that. Yeah, John, you got any comments on where we're, what's next with this technology and where we're going? I want to uh, see a firing, man. Yeah, I mean, I, I can tell you what I would like to see happen. I would like, and and uh, you know, there, there's been both. Uh, legislation with funding as well as executive direction. It's a rare these days, perhaps, to see the legislative and the executive branch of the federal government aligned. But um, I think this needs to be something that NASA puts on the calendar and says, look, you know, 2026 or so, we'll design around the fuel we've got, and it may only be 80% of the engine we want, but we're going to go make sure that we know how to do this, and we will light an NTP engine in space. Um, you know, even if it's to drop a small science package on Phobos around Mars and then bring that back and deposit the spacecraft in the inner solar system. But the mission that I would love to fly is where you take the NTP engine and the spacecraft and you actually launch it into the sun, not not at the sun, but into the sun in towards the sun. Oh. <laughs> and what happens is as the spacecraft gets closer and closer to the sun, it starts speeding up because it's falling into the sun. That's right. And when you get to the maximum speed, that's when you light the engine. And it's called an Oberth maneuver. And it would allow you to zoom that spacecraft out of the solar system at a velocity that would roughly 
catch Voyager in about nine years. So it's a little counterintuitive that if you want to get to the outer part of the solar system, the first thing you do is go into the sun. And then, as Chuck Berry said, you put your foot in your tank and you begin to roll. <laughs> yeah. That what? gets you out of the solar system faster than anything else. And it really brings the outer solar system in which we live, I'll say, closer in time so that you're not waiting nine years for uh, New Horizons to get the Pluto with a Jupiter flyby. Right. And all your, all your starving graduate students are eating ramen noodles for nine years. You can get there in a period of time that's reasonable with respect to a human's career and a lifetime. Well, anybody who's watched Star Trek Four knows that maneuver. So oh, yeah, absolutely. yeah. So that's yeah. right. So you go, right. you, you fly through the sun or around the sun, whip it around, and uh, yep. so I mean, do we know roughly how long a New Horizons that would? Let's say we try to do another one uh, out to Pluto this way. How much do we have an idea how faster it would get there? Well, no, not any faster than we did before. We put the smallest spacecraft that was useful on the biggest rocket we had, waited till things were aligned, and used a Jupiter flyby, and that was about nine years. That's the best we're going to do. So this won't this won't help doing the same thing with New Horizons on a on a NTP rocket. Oh, NTP will help. NTP will cut it by a factor. That's what I'm at. I'm sorry, yeah. I cut you off. I'm I apologize. Absolutely no. By a NTP factor of what? Maybe three-ish, factor okay. three, okay. Um, depending on how you do it and whether you use Jupiter flyby or not and what the alignment is and those kinds of things. But, you know, that's, that's kind of a walking around leaky bucket figure of merit. Well, nine years versus three, uh, three years versus nine years is certainly uh, a much better, uh, you don't have to eat as much ramen that way. So that's, yeah. That'll, yeah. That'll, that'll, so sell, sell short your ramen stock. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's something people don't think about much. I mean, the New Horizons team had to wait nine years after they conceived of their mission to do yep. any actual science. And, you know, that's a career. I mean, that's a good chunk of a career anyway. Yeah, that, and a lot of stuff goes wrong in nine. You could go wrong right. in nine years. <laughs> If I got to build a spacecraft to last nine years, or I got to build a spacecraft to last three years, that's a whole different cost ball game. It's a whole different reliability ball game, and and things get simpler and less expensive the shorter the mission is because you got to feed the army while you're waiting. Right, you got to keep that that mission going. So, uh, Superluminal's got a good question. It started a little bit of a discussion on the chat. Uh, he's he he asked. Could you combine nuclear propulsion with an ion drive system? Instead of competing designs, they could be synergized. And that was followed up with a comment by Russell Joyner, who says that that's called a hybrid bimodal system. Yep. Paper at the International Astronautical Congress last year by a student, Justin Clark, it looked exactly that. You have very high impulse thrust along with very high efficient continuous thrust to see how you might navigate the solar system system with those two. Michael, you got anything to add on that? Yeah, if, if uh, again, some of the designs that are, are being looked at are uh, very amenable to that. You could do a, uh, you know, NTP and then depending on what level of, uh, you know, in, in EP nuclear electric propulsion wanted, uh, could uh, be a lot of, a lot of different design options. And again, looking at uh, kind of the same, uh, starting to get to the point where we're looking at using the same, say, fuel production capabilities, the same infrastructure that's going to be in place. Uh, but again, yeah, definitely a lot of potential to do uh, one or the other or, or optimize a system that would use both of them. Okay. Now, Joseph Kohler is asking a question that I, 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 he's, well, let me read the question, then I'll ask for clarification. He's asking with the new policy, and he doesn't say what new policy that is, how long do you expect it to take to approve it and get it through the Department of Energy and EPA? Does it have to be approved by those agencies before you can use this technology? So the, the uh, new uh, launch approval policy, and again, it's available online. And oh, so well, first tell us uh, what it is then. Yeah, and then... And then okay, it so it's just a, a new a nuclear launch approval policy. It came out a, about a month ago or so. Oh, and okay. It's, uh, it's been signed, and it's it's basically, uh, yeah, the, uh, uh, for example, with a low-enriched uranium system, the uh, signature authority, if it was a NASA mission, would be the NASA administrator. Uh, now, that administrator, he's, of course, going to gather input from uh, other federal agencies, and, and that's all spelled out in the document. But it's a very uh, it's a very quantitative process, which is very important. In other words, it gives a uh, uh, you know, kind of uh, basically almost like a risk-consequence approach, uh, but it, it builds on the, um, you know, all of the, uh, I guess you'd say the regulatory guidelines, things that have developed over the past seven decades that we've been using fission systems on earth. And so it's, a, again, an excellent approach. And so that's, a, it's hard to say 
uh, a length of time, but I think uh, it's safe to say that that won't be, uh, uh, people aren't uh, concerned that that will be a pacing item. In other words, if someone makes a commitment that they're gonna launch a, uh, you know, do a fission system in space, uh, they will start on that approval process, but they won't be afraid to have an aggressive schedule for fear of not being able to get through the approval process on time. So I know that's probably not making sense, but uh, sometimes people get such fear of the approval process uh, that would actually keep them from baselining nuclear on certain missions that had a very aggressive schedule. And this one, uh, the types of analysis that need to be done, the agencies would be involved. Uh, it's straightforward and it looks like a straightforward approach. And so that uh, it's a big confidence booster. Okay. Um, uh, Oldie184 wants me to ask you guys about something called dipolar force field propulsion. Do you know what that is? Dr. Horak. Yeah. <laughs> right. I, do I don't know what it is. So uh, then, I'm supposed to ask your views on it. I'm more puzzled. So. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I don't know it's what it is. A, it's a form of propulsion that uses a dipolar force field. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Okay, we are we are in fact talking about nuclear thermal propulsion. So it's yeah, I don't I've never heard of it, so I don't know. Uh, uh, okay, so um, well, we're running out of time here, and I just want to get your views. So BWXT is a company that clearly has a lot of impressive uh, um, experience with nuclear power. I mean, I put the link by the way to you guys' web page. Uh, on your website about NTP in the description box, but you guys do so many other things with nuclear powered subs and 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 fission energy and all kinds of portable and and varied ways. Um, are we? Is this going to happen? I mean, are we really going to get this for say uh, maybe not Artemis as part of the the next moonshot program? But do you guys are you guys confident this is the future of uh, propulsion and throughout the solar system? for us in, in whatever form, whether it's human beings or unmanned space probes. Sure. I'm, I'm a, I'm a real advocate for either nuclear thermal propulsion or as, as needed nuclear electric propulsion, or even the, the kilopower systems, because you need to build out that infrastructure for higher power levels that solar or battery systems kit just can't provide. So I, I think, I would say we're hopeful that NASA would choose this. This is where it gets involved in the other mission directorates uh, and propulsion systems kind of competing for uh, reference architectures for different missions. And so we want to help NASA ensure that nuclear thermal propulsion is, is a viable option. And to bring it into the next level of technology maturation and make it a true te technology demonstration mission to raise the TRL level such that it can become flight qualified uh, and, and, and enter into the more rigorous and uh, yes, it'll cost more money to enter into that phase of development. But if you don't do it or, and you don't develop some hardware uh, and do some testing of the components uh, and then an integrated test, uh, you'll never have it available. So it, it's better to, to continue the project uh, and keep it moving or, or it may, it's at risk of never being available uh, in the future you guys have any other comments on it i'm, I'm I, I mean i'd like to know when you yeah, know what's your thoughts I, on I, using i would it? like to see the agency nasa right. dedicate itself to a goal that says we're going to design launch and try to light this in space this is how it was developed in the nuclear navy we you know we didn't have a we, the first time we put together a nuclear power system for a submarine it was in a submarine and i really don't want to test this on the ground i we have better ways to do it we don't we don't need to worry about doing it on the ground the money is coming because congress has been appropriating money for a mission the national space council the last time they met they discussed this as a very important technology that nasa needs to develop for human spaceflight, for scientific research, exploration of the outer solar system, and other requirements that the United States has, let's go fly. How do you feel about that, Mike? I, I mean, I think, uh, uh, you know, building on both the comments, uh, I'd heard people, um, you know, on projects throughout industry, uh, throughout universities, saying that they'd like to see Fission do for NASA what Fission has done for the Navy. And I think that's another way to, uh, or to be expressed. In other words, really just open up uh, tremendous capabilities for NASA that uh, you know, we, we don't currently have. And so there is uh, 
uh, yeah, I'll, I'll just say there's a lot of discussions you can imagine on what the best way there is to make that a reality. Uh, but I'm, I'm personally very in favor of things that are very uh, fast paced and, and, and go on a, um, you know, a fast schedule. And so that's, uh, uh, and so that's now I think what's been talked about also is just try to do, uh, you know, set a, set a deadline for something that's very impressive and then uh, do what it takes to make that deadline. And that, of course, everybody uses the Apollo analogy, but I think that was uh, fantastic. I mean, someone asked me the other day, well, uh, you know, how close are we to NTP now? And I would say we're a lot closer to NTP now than we were to a Saturn V in 1961. Oh, yeah. I'll, I'll just, uh, you know, uh, yeah, leave it at that before I get really. That's that's <laughs> nice. That's yeah. that. No, that's very. We go. Uh, we could go real fast on this. That's very well, encouraging. Good to, old, good to be an old NASA guy because you can kind of say what's on your brain. But anyway, not always a smart thing Mike. to do, is it? <laughs> no, but I totally agree with Mike uh, and and Jonathan. I think you guys and uh, have put together a really good set of uh, early TRL work, and you know we're 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 ready to try this. Um, and it won't be the perfect NTP engine the first time. It'll be a good one. It'll work. We'll say, oh, we know how to do this. Okay, now let's make it better. Awesome. Um, perfect's enemy of the good. Yes, yes, exactly. Well, I, I'm going to have to stop it there because we're out of time. I want to thank my guest, Dr. Jonathan Witter. He's a chief NTP engineer at BWX Technologies. Uh, Dr. Michael House, at the, he's, uh, he's the senior uh, NTP guy at NASA's Marshall Space Flight Center. Dr. John Horak, uh, he's the Neil Armstrong Chair in Aerospace and is also the Senior Associate Dean of Engineering at Ohio State University. So thank you all for joining us and getting me hyped about NTP. I I, I didn't know much about it until I went to Von Braun and the Von Braun, Von Braun Symposium, and then I saw all kinds of really cool things about it. I'm very excited to uh, to uh, learn more and keep on it. I'm hoping you guys might consider coming back in, a, in another future hangout and give us an update on where we are on this technology. So thank you all so much for taking time out. Yeah, appreciate you having us. Yeah, yeah, thank you. My pleasure. Okay. Well, I want to thank you guys so much for watching. This will be on, this will be a VOD on YouTube, Twitter, Twitch, and Facebook. You can watch it. I'm still monitoring comments there. So uh, we'll be able to follow up uh, or I'll follow up on, on, on various questions if you have any uh, after watching the live hangout. So thank you all so much for watching. And as always, keep looking up. <laughs> so long. So long, guys. Thanks. Yeah, thanks to everybody. Thank you.